0: and a very big welcome to series 4 episode 7 of MavGeek's a military aircraft obsession. My name's Ginny Carlin and this is Jamie Gordon. So Halloween very much over. I Hope you managed to uh, use all the middle of the pumpkin to make some soup and managed to get through all the kids sweets that they got and didn't get too high on the sugar. Uh, but we move on this week to something very very special, a queen of the sky.
1: Yes, a lot more from Mandy Hickson's to come very soon. But how's
0: life over in Canada? You're sort of two and a bit weeks in now, I suppose. Well, not quite two weeks. It's just over a week. How mad is that? It's a week and a half. Yeah, all very good, thank you. We've touched minus 15. Right. <laughs> nice. And uh, it's a balmy. It's going to get to a balmy four degrees today. But I just wanted to show you something because I've been out shopping uh, and I've bought something. After speaking to Tim Peak, I saw this in a shop. And it had to be bought. Let me just show you. Look at that.
1: Oh my goodness.
0: <laughs> I know. I showed it my mum and uh, my mum had the same reaction. Uh, let, let's just say what it is. It's actually a snow globe with a space shuttle inside. And, and the detail is really good because it's at Cape Canaveral, all there, ready to go. It's even got, you know, like the little bit that falls away, like where all the... Uh, the people kind of walked to the space shuttle. Oh, the gantry, yeah. That's it. I couldn't think what it was called. It's even got that. That is the level of detail. But after speaking to my mate, Tim Peake, and I say that, you know, my mate, then it had to be bought, Jamie. I have to say, it's a very sizable snow globe. (laughs) Yes, and it costs quite a bit of money as well, which uh, I did the whole thing of, I'm not buying it, I'm not buying it, I'm not buying it. I'm buying it! (laughs) (laughs) Oh dear. So let's move on to today's interview, which is a brilliant interview, Jamie. I've got to say, you got to speak to a very special lady, Mandy Hickson, one of the first fast jet pilots in the UK, and her story of the challenges, of the hurdles, of everything she had to face to get to where she got to in the RAF. So here she is. <laughs>
1: Uh, Mandy, thank you so much for joining us on MavGeeks. You have been um, a person we've been desperate to get hold of uh, for for lots of reasons, but mainly because you've had a fantastic flying career, which we'll come to soon. But um, you you wrote a book called An Officer and Not a Gentleman, which um, highlighted your, not, well, difficulties or... Uh, hurdles that you had to overcome to get into the RAF. Can you just pray see your early flying experience and how you ended up eventually joining the RAF as a, as a pilot?
2: Absolutely. Hi there, Jamie. So, yeah, it was interesting. I like to think of them as more as challenges because I think when you're young and you're going through a process, you don't particularly see these as doors in front of you. But you just think, OK, how else can I constantly get there? So when I was first interested in joining the Air Force, women weren't allowed to be pilots. I was then told I had an obesity problem because they didn't, the height charts didn't go up to six foot tall for women. So I had to lose three and a half stone and become nine and a half stone as a uh, six foot tall woman, which was crazy. And then also, there's, you know, it's highly competitive as it is today. But when they changed the rules, I applied and then I failed all of the tests to be a pilot, not once, but twice. And it was only after much investigation and some challenging from the boss of the club that I joined, the University Air Squadron, that actually they found out that the majority of women were failing these tests and they hadn't ever really been tested on women. And so they took me on as a test case in the end to really see how far through the system someone with very little aptitude could get before they failed. Which is not necessarily the most positive start to your fast jet training. Um, but for myself, it was the opportunity i had been waiting for, the opportunity to get in, to prove myself and to prove that I could do the job that I believed I could do.
1: Because your flying instructors were telling you, you're <clears throat> above average pilots, but the computer at, at air crew selection said no, which seems crazy now looking back.
2: Yeah, it does actually, doesn't it? So i would gained about 160 hours on the University Air Squadron. Hey-ho, those were the days. Anyone listening who's with the UAS now will be like, what? How did that happen? Um, But yeah, so a lot of hours of flying and I'd represented the squadron at aerobatics competitions and I'd always been performing at a really good level as well. And I'd completed the whole syllabus. And so it didn't seem to correspond with the results they were seeing from those um, computer-based aptitude tests um, so, yeah, I mean, I think I was at a time where there was a lot of change happening because they'd only just opened the doors to women. And so actually, in some ways, let's just see that positive for myself. But the tests did go on to change and they do see more women passing them now. Um, and so, yeah, we're slowly seeing more people going in like that. Because
1: I did aircrew selection at uh, Biggin Hill when I was 17, and because I'd been flying gliders <laughs> since I was 13. I was all right with the, the flying element of it. But I got bumped because I was colorblind so
2: oh you know it's so devastating
1: yeah and and having said that a few years later I actually got a backseat riding a phantom and it proved to me that I couldn't have done it anyway oh. <laughs> I, I really could not have done it
2: it's pretty stressful I'll be honest isn't it and it's quite a, you know I think a lot of people think oh and the amount of times I do public speaking now and I'll get people queuing up to speak to me afterwards and they say oh that could have been my job I I wanted to be a pilot and I think you say it could have been you but you know what? It takes a hell of a lot of training, a determination. You've got to be so thick skinned with some of the hits that you take. But, you know, the one thing I would always say, Jamie, to anyone that's interested in doing this is to to check that they've got, they are medically fit before they almost start on that route, because you can pay to get an, a medical done and you will find out anything from being colourblind. It could be that there's a slight eyesight issue that you didn't know about. It could be that you've had childhood asthma or eczema or all of these things that are in your records that you think, gosh, I didn't know that that would have precluded me from following this, this chosen pathway. So get that checked out first is what I always say.
1: So at this stage, obviously, somebody believed in you um, because you made it yeah. to, um, to, to flight training. Tell us about that. Where did you go first? What did you fly first?
2: So I started off, I mean, Bulldog was what I was flying on the University Air Squadron. And then when I joined the Air Force, I flew the um, Firefly at Barxton Heath and I held there initially, actually. So I got loads of hours while I was holding. And originally we weren't going to do the course. They were going to fast track anyone that got a certain amount of hours who had finished the syllabus at University Air Squadron. They were going to fast track us straight to Tucano. But then we held for so long, they realised that we probably hadn't flown for about two and a bit years by the time we were getting there. So they, they sent us on a really short course of just 40 hours um on the firefly completed that and then went straight off to tucano's after a small hold again so probably when well, i say small hold it was about a year um flew the tucano in york which i love the tucano it's brilliant really good fun aircraft to fly and to the fact that it had a retractable undercarriage it feels like you're sort of stepping up you know it's a turboprop. it's 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 the next level. It's going at double the speed. And now, because it's a military aircraft, not a civilian registered one, we could now drop down to lower levels. So now we're going down to those sort of 500 and then 250 feet. Um, and so you're now practising really what you're going to be doing in the next stage, which is going to be the Hawk. So completing the carno, uh, and then off to fly the... the The Hawk at uh, RAF Valley in Anglesey. And you do, obviously, basic flying training on one side of the airfield. Then you go across and do your advanced flying training, which is the tactical weapons squadron, where you start to learn about, uh, you know, dropping weapons, uh, air-to-air combat, you know, putting a package together at low level in tactical formation at low level. So all of these things. So you're building and building. And each one of these courses is just a building block. So
1: how far along were you flying in the Ticano? Were you going up to Scotland or, you know, all the lower level stuff?
2: Yeah, we did all the low level. I mean, I took the, we did landaways. I did landway to, up to Edinburgh, you know, up to Lucas. We did a speech for the University Air Squadron up there and they hosted us for a very fun evening. Um, the longest trip I ever did though was down to Paris, actually. And you would do these things called, uh, you know, operational You know, trips abroad, basically. And it's really to keep the instructors current as well, because all the instructors are, you know, pilots that have come from the front line, flying fast jets and now on the Tucano. And actually, you do need to keep all of these these training sort of flights about landing overseas, you know, planning the trips. So you stay current on those, and we just so happened to plan our one to Paris, and so we had four aircraft that we took over to Paris, and we had a fantastic weekend um, staying in the at like the equivalent of the Air Force Club in Paris, which is just unbelievable.
1: And the perfect transition, as you say, to go to Valley to fly the Hawk.
2: Yeah, it is. I mean, it's a really great stepping stone, and I think as well with the Texan now you've got you know so much more technology on board. It's it it's again it's just lending itself to saying you know what, rather than just trying to frazzle your brains, let's give you the technology that you're going to actually have to fly on the front line, because we need people to train with what they're actually going to do, as opposed to just trying to basically overload them. When I read
1: your book about your time specifically at Valley, um, you so comprehensively wrote about the amount of hard work involved, not only in the air, but on the ground in particular.
2: Yeah. Tell us a bit about that. So you do six weeks of ground school, which again, it depends if you're a really technically minded person. I mean, I'm not. So actually the tech for myself, I, you know, I did struggle with it. Let's be really honest. You know, I'm learning about engines. I'm learning about all sorts of things. Suck, squeeze, bang, blow. How does an engine work? I'm like, yeah, give me a basic scenario. You know, I've got people who are aeronautical engineer graduates sitting next to me with a photographic brain. And he's going, hold on a minute. That Diagram doesn't make sense. I'm just thinking. I'm just trying to look at the diagram and make sense of it, not quizzing <laughs> whether or not it's correct, um, which was really funny. But um, yeah, so the ground school is pretty hard, and then you start the all the simulators work within ground school as well. So you're starting to learn how to fly the aircraft in the sim and, and more as well, trying to learn all the checks. Because one thing that's a big difference between the military and commercial flying and civilian flying is that, you know, we don't use a checklist, it's all memorized. So making sure that that flow and that you've created these memory, um, you know, pictures in our brains as to how you flow and actually commit all of those checks, checklists to your memory is unbelievable, really. Um, And then you start to fly and, you know, Even the training inside itself, you know, it's a brilliant stepping stones, though. I mean, people, you're not taking someone who's just walking off the street and sticking them in a fast jet. You know, you've gone through stages and stages of training to get to that point. But the hawk, for myself, I would describe it as the, it's like the, it's the mini mini metro it's the it's the sports car of the fast jet world you know you've got the enormous tornado sitting up there or the typhoon or the you know f35 and then you've got the hawk and the hawk f- is just brilliant it's getting it doesn't take long to start it up you can be airborne pretty quickly highly agile brilliant to fly and, you know, you're developing your skills as you go through that basic flying side before you go on what was for myself was 208 squadron. I think it's now four squadron. Um, and then you and then you go over to the tactical weapon side, which it ramps up enormously at that point.
1: I was going to say that the pressure to succeed then kicks in because you're you're constantly on the edge of failure.
2: Yeah, you are, actually. And you you're really only ever about three trips away from being chopped. Um, let's be honest. And it was a really, really stark warning to ourselves because we turned up to fly and there was a course that was about to graduate. And there was a guy on that course and his dad was um, Air Chief Marshal. And he was coming as the reviewing officer. He was going to hand out all the awards and the all of the brevets, the pilot's wings at the wings parade. And this guy actually got chopped two trips away from the end. And we kept thinking, if they're going to chop the Air Chief Marshal's son two trips away from graduating... What hope do we have? So the pressure was massive, absolutely.
1: That's an enormous kick in the, in the watch sets,
2: isn't it? I know. Can you imagine getting that close? I, I did have quite a few friends, actually, that got really close to the end. And, and I, you know, it was an interesting one. I was talking to actually a friend of mine and, and he just, re- I remember really clearly him saying, I'm really struggling. I was like, it's only two more trips. It's only two more trips. He's like, I just don't know if I can hang in there. That's how brutal it felt, actually, and how much capacity you were having to use when you were airborne.
1: Now, at that stage, above and beyond the fact that there were virtually no women in your position at the time, um, it strikes me as though in that environment, specifically a valley, um, camaraderie really kicks in. And there's a beautiful part of the book, which I always thought would make great telly, was uh, about formation flying on bikes.
2: Yeah, absolutely. So... It's It was an interesting one, really. So I was really struggling. I was very, very near to being chopped. And I'd been told, you know, Mandy, you're facing a chop ride. And the guys basically took me out. And we were doing this thing called battle turns. It's called something different now, I think. But it's tactical low-level flying with a, a pair of aircraft. And you go in at 250 feet. And you've got a route to fly. You've got um, an instructor that's simulating being your enemy. He's trying to get into your six o'clock to shoot you down. You're hitting targets within five seconds. And you're sticking with your wingman. And because they're the only people that can see into your six o'clock and, and can actually enable you to make better quality decisions as a team. But it means you must always coordinate your turns and you need to do this thing called battle turns, where you you basically pull up, you cross at a perpendicular angle. And when you roll out, your information. And it was the thing I was failing. And I was planning it so much. I was going into my room. I was getting the maps out. I was working out the numbers, the degrees I was turned through before I would then turn back. I'd have it all written on my map to try to help myself. But actually in doing that, what I was doing was losing the, the bigger picture and the guys on my course recognised it, took us out on the bikes on this parade square and we're, we're cycling around it. And, you know, they were sort of yelling, 30 starboard, 60 port," and we would do all these manoeuvres, Rotate. And suddenly I thought, oh, my God, this is really easy. And they just kept saying, look at the bigger picture, Mandy. And suddenly when you reframe it in your mind from what you're looking at, the numbers in your cockpit, to bigger picture, looking at how you're crossing over, looking at how you're rolling out and making sure that you're on the right heading, then tweaking it ever so slightly, suddenly it made sense. And I flew the trip the next day and I passed it. And it was this lovely moment where I was telling the instructor and he just said, wow, I mean, that is selflessness at its absolute best, isn't it? You know, guys that, you know, there is a level of competition between you because also there's certain slots on the next courses. And we know that there was a holding system and you know, say you've got four spaces on a tornado OCU on the operational conversion unit. If you've only got four spaces and now there's five of you, one of you is going to have to hold for about six months or a year. So actually that level of competition of thinking, oh, I'm secured where I'm going. Suddenly these guys do go the extra mile. Um, But that's what the military is about. It's about selflessness and it is about that camaraderie.
1: So you've done it. You're still at Valley and then you get streamed. What's what's the process? Do you have a choice? You don't?
2: Um, Well, yes and no, actually. Firstly is, are you good enough to go single seat? So that's a big one is, have you got a single seat recommend? For myself, it wasn't. I was not good enough to go single seat. I was going to be a a twin seat pilot. I also was really keen to do that as well. So I'd actually held with um, a tornado squadron. And I really like the camaraderie and I quite like the banter. I like the fact that you're flying with someone and there's that teamwork aspect to it. But you can't take away the fact that I wasn't good enough. So that's fine. I'm really happy with that. I did want to fly the Tornado GR4, though I didn't want to fly the F3. And although I was pretty good at air-to-air combat, you know, I'd had some really good battles with, you know, colleagues. I often came out on top. Actually, I much preferred low level. I love the planning of it. I like the precision of it um i love the rush of flying at low level to me that's so much more fun and i like the job i like the fact that often you were called upon to do a task and that's the job you were going to do whereas i felt going into air defense at the time you know i just didn't see that there was a huge role for us apart from being on qra on the quick reaction um team actually I wanted to be able to do the job I'd signed up to do. And that for me was the gr 4 So yes, you can put in a request as to where you want to go, but then it's just down to numbers on courses, abilities and them seeing where you would fit in. And, you know, then they spin the wheel and we went to the bar and there's this big paddling pool and this paddling <laughs> pool is full of those little white polystyrene things we were all in the paddling pool they would spin this huge wheel of death and it's got pictures on it of um, all the different aircraft types and if you spun the wheel and landed on an aircraft type that you weren't going to fly like the F3 you'd have to neck a pint and I probably <laughs> had to neck about five pints before I finally landed on the GR4 and I was like please and then you had to get back in the paddling pool and there's bits of polystyrene everywhere <laughs> you know it was oh my god it was hilarious I mean I was obviously could barely walk by the time I found out that I was flying a tornado but you know there we go hey hey and
1: how did it go after that where where did you go next what was it like when you were stood up next to that jet for you know knowing you were going to fly it
2: yeah the tornadoes are a beast of an aircraft in fact it was fantastic i was at the boscombe down um aviation museum yesterday and i was standing next to a tornado gr1 it was the first one that had come off the um, production line oh my god it's an enormous aircraft and i forget just how big it is you know it's so much bigger than a tornado than, than a hawk And, you know, you've got this big stepladder to get up to it and you're standing at the top thinking, Christ almighty, I'm taking (laughs) off in this. But there's a really lovely feeling of I've reached the the aircraft I'm now going to do my job in. And there's a big difference. So when you get to the operational conversion unit and I was on the number one OCU. So it had gone from being the tri-national operational conversion unit down at Cottesmore and it was now the national um, operational conversion unit up at Lossie Mouth so I was on number one course and we went through and it was quite funny we went through with the, with the, the new boss that was going to be the boss of the squadron so that was quite funny having him as a course mate, but now knowing he's also going to be your boss when we get through. Um, he was a lovely guy, Simon. And um, yeah, we went through, there was only four of us on our course. Uh, sorry, there was there was four um, Brits that were going through from the system. And then we had a few guys, one American guy had come over, a guy from Australia as well. So there was a few more that came and joined the course, but really great camaraderie. The thrill of taking off in a tornado for the very first time is just unbelievable.
1: Um, But, you you know, it's a job, and you did operational tours over the no-fly zones. Um, One particular instance stands out in the book as well. Um, Can you tell us about that?
2: Yeah, I mean, there's a couple of really big ones for myself. Um, One was early on where we were tasked to destroy a target in the just to the south of Baghdad. So it's further, way further north than we'd ever been. And it was a fibre optics building. And they were about to basically turn all of their fibre optics online. And we were going to lose a lot of our intelligence. So we were tasked to destroy this bunker with all the, the um, fibre optics in it. And we were on the mission, and as we turned northbound, the whole sky was filled with tracer rounds, surface-to-air missiles being fired indiscriminately, it would seem. And I had my night vision goggles up, and my nav just said, are you goggles up or down? I was like, they're up. He goes, leave them. I was like, definitely not. What's he talking about? Click them down. I was like, oh, my God. And we were going straight into the thick of it. And I was lasing the target for my, we call it a cooperative attack. So I was with a wingman. I would laze the target. He would drop the weapon, and it would go in on under my laser energy. And we did the mission and we destroyed the target. It was absolutely clinical precision. And when we came back, we saw the predator footage and there was an unmanned aerial vehicle above us. And um, we saw a man actually smoking a cigarette outside, drinking a cup of tea, throwing it on the floor, entering a door. Our weapons went in the other side. And I just had this heart stopping moment thinking, oh, my goodness, I've just witnessed firsthand the destruction of what you cause, obviously, which I know sounds crazy when you're processing that, but you're not bloodthirsty individuals. You're doing the job that you're set out to do. And then I saw the door open and he'd obviously been in the frame of the door. And when he opened the door and walks out, I, I'll be honest, all of our, there was a sort of collective sigh of, oh, because actually you're not wanting to kill people. That's not why you're doing the job. You're, you're doing the job because that's what you're tasked to do. So that was one really memorable and one And another one was when we were actually targeted by a heat-seeking surface-to-air missile that we managed to evade with our flares uh, by carrying out the manoeuvre that we'd been trained to do. And it was a really monumental night because I was leading my first ever combat mission as well. So, you know, not only am I now getting over the shock of just literally evading a missile, but also we've now got a retasking. We had basically a response option, an RO3, which was to carry out an attack on a target, we were running out of fuel there was a sandstorm coming up from the uh, the south through Saudi when we got to a tanker it wasn't the British one ours had broken it'd been replaced by a KC-135 and I wasn't cleared to tank so you know my boss said why not have a go he was in my formation and I had an attempt and it wasn't successful so I'm now feeling this huge weight of burden of feeling like a failure wanting to succeed but recognizing if I did carry on it's going to prevent the rest of the mission from happening because the other guys on my team are more qualified and have experience in tanking of this type and so we moved across we went back to the base and um, my number two and three went back into a and located the target and yeah jamie it was one of those moments where i landed and thought god i feel like a real failure but actually making the right decisions under pressure you know you realize you earn your stripes through action through decisiveness and for making the right call at the right time. And it might not always just involve you. That's not the point. It's about making the right decisions.
1: I just wanted to chat about the red flag exercise out in, in um, Nevada. Um, yeah. Because it, it's, it's a big diary date for, for people in your profession, isn't it?
2: Oh, God, red flag is it's the creme de la creme. If, if Guinness were to do it. I know what's, <laughs> fun, the exercises. Red flags are unbelievable. Um, I absolutely loved it. The flying that you do out there is phenomenal. So you're doing a lot of operational low flying or OLF, so down to 100 feet. They've got some actual missile systems that you go up against. You do real-time scenarios. They'll put down air crew out. Uh, so you can do combat survival and rescue operations as well. They do a night exercises as well. So you can do um, an entire red flag at night which we did actually for one of the weeks we were out there. And that was really, really interesting because with the unique capability of the tornado and being able to use our terrain-following radar to step down to low level, we were often really successful when actually many of the other um, military aircraft that out there weren't successful, which you think, what? It's quite old technology or whatever it is, but actually that TFR capability put us into a really unique spot. And we'd be like, they were like, how did you manage to get to the target? How did you drop your weapons? We were like, well, there you go. You can step it down. Um, and so the other big thing about red flag that I think is really important because, it, you know, for people that are outside the military, they think, why are you spending so much money? Why are you taking all these jets out there? Well, we're used to traveling and training in the UK. That's not the area of conflict we're in. We're operating in hot, high deserts, you know, temperatures are 40 degrees. If you don't ever practice in the areas that you're actually operational in, you know, then how are you ever going to learn? And we always say you're going to train harder than you're ever going to have to fight for real. So you're going to be put through your paces so that when you're then in an area of conflict, actually it seems easier than it should do.
1: Did you ever have jet envy while you were out there? Because Americans have always had more toys than we had
2: oh my god dude, the, <laughs> we're sitting there with our little like four aircraft like we're struggling to get another one up from for you man being like <laughs> and then this it's, it's, like, entire pan is full of like light gray like bluey gray color which is their jets are painted in and you're thinking yeah yeah i wouldn't mind just taking one of those i'll just take an f-15 up actually because that could be a bit of fun
1: <laughs> were there actually more female crew to talk to because the americans had female pilots long before we did
2: yeah, they did. To be honest, no, they weren't really. Oh, right. um, there, was, there was Soraya, who was the, um, she was the F3 nav. So Soraya and I went through training together. She's now the highest ranking female aircrew in the Air Force. So Soraya Marshall, a great friend of mine, an absolutely superstar as far as I'm concerned. I've got so much respect for her and what she's achieved in the Air Force. And she was um, a navigator, so she'd gone through the training a bit quicker. So she was actually what we call OC um, Blue. So she was basically officer commanding Blue Flight. So she was taking on all the air defence side of things for the Blue Blue side of the goodies, basically. And so she was doing all the mission briefings, um, and it was fantastic. So... Yeah, I, I would sort of sit and listen to her and think, bloody hell, I've got a lot to learn. I've got a lot to learn still. And it was great to do it from some of them <laughs> that I went through training with. But basically, because of the speed that you go through navigator training or now, you know, um, weapon systems operator training, then she'd sped up in her in getting to the front line. So, yeah, there was, there was her, but there weren't very many Americans, actually. I think there was only literally one, possibly two. Um, I think the A-10s were flying and I think there were a couple of A-10 p- female pilots. But apart from that... Not very many at all still.
1: Okay. Am I right in thinking that flying back from Red Flag uh, coincided with
2: 9-11? Yeah, that was a that was a, a day that you'll never forget. I think it was a day no one will ever forget because it's one of those ones where they will say, oh, you know what you were doing when Kennedy was shot. Well, everyone knows what they were doing when 9-11 happened. And yeah, we were halfway across the Atlantic. We'd just taken off from Larges um, in the Azores and we were en route to Marham. And we heard that they just, we were in a th- really thick cloud, actually. There was this th- a real band of, of cumulonimbus thunderstorms going up. And so it was really, really bumpy. We are in thick cloud, and we just heard that they'd shut American airspace. And it was sort of this moment of like...
1: Well, that's never happened before.
2: Yeah, never. I mean, we can't even process it. You're thinking, well, I don't understand what could be so big. Is it like the whole air traffic system's gone down? You know, you're trying to process it. Um, but there's this lovely phrase that we use, which is control the controllables. And if you can't, let it go. So it's like, OK, what can we do about it? Aviate, navigate, uh, you know, communicate. And so fly your airplanes, number one. So we all got our air-to-air radars on and we started to scan the airspace because that's the number one thing, don't have an air-to-air collision. Um, and then you're going to be navigating, making sure that we're still going the right route. We, I mean, we're obviously still with the tanker as well. And they're the ones that are obviously in charge of that side of things but it was just this whole feeling and then when we came over the UK we we heard uh, this this call going out on the guard frequency on the emergency frequency and it was from a an american aircraft carrier and it was on an exercise just off the south coast and there's like a 5 nautical mile excu- exclusion zone it's like a you know a flying runway oh, sorry a, a sailing runway moving runway and so it was go- basically they were saying to the aircraft blah 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 please divert your track. You're on a direct collision course. We are loading live weapons and we're about to shoot you down. Like, again, this didn't make sense. So we're thinking you've got Americans now about to shoot down a civilian aeroplane because it's flying in towards their zone. This is crazy. I mean, they believed it was a terrorist, obviously. And we realized very quickly that we were the nearest airborne assets and air traffic control gave us radar vectors in the end. And we tried to reach them constantly on the guard frequency. And eventually we got through and we were we were a matter of minutes from them but they were more importantly a matter of minutes from flying into the zone and so they changed their their course and they they would have been shot down over the UK that day and so yeah we played a small part in that i think
1: that's a hell of a story yeah so to just to just about end on but um i just wanted to you know look at what you're doing now and and the relevance your career in the RAF has on what you're doing now
2: yeah, so when I left 12 years ago, I sort of made the assumption that I'd become an airline pilot because I think that's what everyone thinks they'll do. And then after getting my commercial pilot's license, I, I realized that I was—it was a hollow feeling. I didn't really want to go into that. And I was flying with the unit, um, with the uh, air cadets, doing air experience flying. And I was flying with this girl, and she sort of landed and went, "I want to be a pilot just like you." And I realized in that moment, actually, the impact that positive role models can have on that next generation is actually so much more important to me than following the career that I was thinking I was going to do and so it was a huge leap of faith I set up my own business called experience from the front line and I started doing a lot of public speaking initially in schools predominantly and then that grew into businesses and now I travel all over the world it's opened up so many other avenues as well you know writing the book an officer not a gentleman was was helpful that went out in lockdown but I joyously was rejected from all the publishing houses. Um, but the best one was from a publishing house that said, plain books for a male readership that have no interest in a woman's story.
1: Oh, for goodness sake.
2: Still <laughs> going on. So, yeah, I self-published it and it's, it's done really well. And I think that's opened doors as well. But from then I went on to become an aviation ambassador for the Department for Transport. I've recently become a trustee with the Royal Air Force Charitable Trust, which aligns so much with my values of... Basically, looking at react at the international air tattoo and those proceeds that we we make from our money we raise from that. Go in to help all these STEM-related activities, sponsorships, scholarships, funding for STEM-related activities in schools, air cadets, and university air squadrons. So, working out where to spend that pot of money is really, really exciting for me to be involved in as well. Uh, and the latest I've heard, hot off the press today, I've just become made a fellow at the Royal Aeronautical Society. So, oh
1: wow! Yeah, that's congratulations! Been, yeah,
2: thank you ever so much. It really means a lot. I and mean, you know, I was reading about it, and they sort of they describe it as it's like getting the Oscar in your chosen career and so yeah it's 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 a moment for myself of reflection to think yeah you know I think I've been you know that the person I hope that I would become to create that legacy of change really and for other people to to think yeah you know if she can do it this young girl from Manchester who grew up you know without very much money not from a privileged upbringing you know you want to talk social mobility and all of those factors well actually if she can do it well why the heck can't I and that's really important to me
1: well, that's a perfect way to, to end this. Thank you so much for your time, Mandy. It's been d- joyous to talk to you and good luck in everything else you do in the future.
2: Thanks so much, Jamie. Absolute pleasure to talk to you.
0: Do you know, it's, it's hearing women like that that just inspires not only me, but I'm sure so many other people. Uh, hearing of, of the hurdles that she went through and, and overcame, but just... The joy as well of what, what she did in the Air Force and how much she enjoyed it and what it meant to her. What a role model. I absolutely love her. Well done, Jamie.
1: Oh, she was just a pleasure to talk to. And and as you say, a role model. And she's so very keen on getting people into aviation and so they can see the best side of it. So it was a real privilege to talk to her. And um, I thoroughly really enjoyed it.
0: Well, you know what we've got next week, don't you, Jamie? Um, is it?
1: Are we going somewhere warmer?
0: Well, yeah, anywhere's warmer than here, to be fair, (laughs) but yes, (laughs) we are going somewhere warmer. Uh, We're going back in time, we're getting in the DeLorean, and uh, we're going back to the balmy summer. When I say balmy, it wasn't really hot, was it? It It was pretty rubbish. And this weekend that we're talking about, the weather was absolute pants, but what an absolute fantastic weekend it was. Yes, we're going back to react 23
1: really excited about that if you want to get in touch with the program by all means do tell us what you like what you don't like tell us your aviation stories mavgeeks at bfbs.com is the address to write to us
0: and also we say it every week but we absolutely mean it we would love a review from you so please write us a review on the platform that you get your podcast from please make it a good one (laughs) <laughs> We're not begging, but yes, really, we are. Uh, because it just means that we can carry on doing this podcast. And I think you know by now how much me and Jamie love doing this.
1: OK, see you
0: back in time next
1: week at the Royal International Air Tattoo.
0: ta Cheers!